everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. Welcome to episode 6 of History and Mystery. I am your ghost host, Ariel. In today's episode, I will be covering the history and hauntings of the beautiful islands of Hawaii, along with the monster of the week called the Menehune. Before I get into all that, I would like to give a big shout out to everyone who has subscribed and downloaded my podcast. I am now at 222 downloads, and I now have seven reviews on iTunes, including one new one that has a comment attached to it that I will read in a little bit. But first, I would like to announce that I have made a website for my podcast as a way for you all to get to know me a little better. I also have a link to my Patreon page that I also just now started. Um, You can find my website link on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page. But if you want to put it in your browser, it's www.historyandmystery13.wix.com slash website. I'm on the free plan right now, but I hope to be able to pay a once a month fee someday, Uh, but for now you're going to see the ad at the top of it. Sorry about that. I've also started a Patreon page. I've been realizing that it is quite expensive to promote my show, and I'm trying really hard to get new listeners so more people can enjoy the history and spooks with me. So I have started a Patreon page to try to help me cover just the cost of my podcast host Uh, monthly payment and someday I would love to sell merchandise um, like show stickers, decals, maybe even a t-shirt someday. Uh, I would never ask anyone who's struggling to donate to my show. I would like, I will still be doing this show for free and making it lots of fun. But if you like the show and you feel like you can donate $1 or more a month, I would greatly appreciate it. I have two tiers as of right now. If you donate $1, you will be under the Thunderbird tier. And I'm going to be sending a fun little news e-letter once a month just to let you know of upcoming shows and maybe fun little facts or articles that fits the time of year or what my show is about. And you also get a shout out on the show. And the next tier will be called the Mothman tier. And this tier will get a news e-letter, the one I just said, and plus you'll be getting an extra e-newsletter that will cover monsters and UFO sightings that are still making the news today. I'm trying to find some other things, but for now that's all I've got at the moment. But don't worry, I'm going to be adding a lot more to my whole history and mystery section anyway. You can find the Patreon page from a link on my website, or you can go to patreon.com and type in my show name, History and Mystery. I will also leave the links in the description box down below. 
And just a quick reminder to add me on Facebook and Twitter at History and Mystery and also my Instagram page at History underscore Mystery 13. And I've also started posting my podcast on YouTube as well. So you can find me at History and Mystery. If you know anyone who would love my show but maybe does not do the podcast apps, uh, let them know that I'm also on YouTube. And if you are someone that likes YouTube as well, go on there and subscribe. And make sure to please hit that like button and leave me a comment to let me know you found me. Speaking of comments, it's time to read uh, the new comment that I got on iTunes from the username that I think says catlover1959. They said, Fab Pod, loving this podcast. I'm so glad Diane from History Goes Bump recommended it. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for that review. Leaving me reviews is really helpful for me to make my show fun for everyone. And again, thank you so much, Diane from History Goes Bump, for that amazing shout out about my show. And thank you so much, Cat Lover 1959. Last but not least, Halloween is on its way, and I would love for more listener stories for the Halloween show. I already have my own story, and I have one other to tell, but I would love to have a few more. So if you have a personal paranormal or UFO experience story, please email them to me at historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. Or you can now easily contact me through my website. If you scroll down all the way to the bottom of my homepage, there is a really easy way uh, that you can write me a message uh, through their website. So I can't wait for Halloween. I hope you're all excited to get spooky and have some great tricks and treats. It's time for my favorite part of the show, and that is Monster of the Week. This monster comes to us from the Hawaiian mythology known as the Menehune. The Menehune are known as the Hawaiian's little people. What's known as the little people pop up in many cultures all over the world. Just a few examples is that of the leprechauns and the wugpudgy. If you don't know what a wugpudgy is, stay tuned for my Halloween episode. Most of them are known for being tricksters, and the Menahune are no exception. According to the Hawaiian legend, the Menahune lived in the islands long before the Polynesian people ever came to the islands of Hawaii. When the first Polynesian people arrived, it is said that they discovered roads, temples, dams, and fish ponds that were already there and built by the little people that lived on the islands, and their work was far superior to the Polynesian people at this time. So they were basically master craftsmen. The Menahune are said to be about two feet tall and some to be as small as six inches tall. They are shy and do not like conflict and today live deep in the forests. Aside from being a master craftsman, the Menahune enjoy dancing, singing, archery, and cliff diving. They have magic arrows that they would shoot at people whose hearts were full of anger, but instead of killing the person, the arrow would change their hearts to have love and compassion. For nearly a thousand years, they lived in peace with the newcomers who made it to the island. Until one day, they decided to build a fish pond in honor and for the princess and her brother. The Menahune 
only like to build at night and they only build things if they are not being watched by outsiders. If interrupted, it is said that they would abandon the structure and run and hide for a time. The prince and princess promised them that they would be left alone to work, but they were deceived. The prince and the princess snuck up on them at night to watch them build the fish pond. And while watching, the boy and girl fell asleep. In the morning, the Menahuna found them and cursed them. Getting sick of humans backing out on their promises and going to war with each other over and over, they turned the prince and princess into stone pillars that can still be seen to this day. And the Menahune went deep into the forest and into hiding from humans for good. Now, instead of being kind to humans that they run across, they have turned into tricksters, tricking people and luring them into the woods never to be found again. They have been seen by many people still to this day. A story I read from cryptidsguide.com talked of a man who lived on Maui. The man claimed that when he was driving home to Luihana town at night, when he spotted the Menehune on the side of the road, he stopped his car in shock and they stared at each other, and their eyes met, and then the Menehune ran off into the forest. He described him to be a short man with an air of majesty around him. Apparently, this was not the only time he had seen one, because 25 years later, he had two more sightings. Once when he was walking around his property, he saw a female who appeared apparently looked regal and who was standing next to another Manahune who looked regal as well. The man took it as a sign not to sell the land he was planning to sell. Rather than sell it, he decided to save the land and keep the legend of the Manahune alive. A more creepy story of a Manahune sighting comes from the book that I'm really into right now called Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offit. In the Hawaiian chapter of his book, he discusses the Manahune and three people named Noah, Brian, and Lisa had a run-in with the Menahune, and it is a very creepy story. So apparently, uh, under a clear night sky, the three drove to an isolated beach um, to start up a little campfire and have some fun, and when they lit the fire, um, Lisa started noticing that the rocks and the roots around the tree looked very weird and as if they were grotesque faces. And Lisa pointed it out to the companions, and they weren't really scared about it. They thought it was just merely a hallucination or maybe the light playing a trick on them. But as Noah built the fire, Lisa and Brian walked down a footpath uh, through the tall grass. And that's when they started seeing shadows, and they weren't tall shadows. They were like small people shadows. So they got scared, and Brian and Lisa ran back to the fire. And they looked over and they realized that when the fire was lit, that they were right next to a old altar that Hawaiians use as a place of worship. And Lisa was very angry uh, at Brian for bringing them to such a spiritually charged place. So growing paranoid, uh, Lisa and Brian decided to walk uh, to the spiritual place and um, present a gift, which they had only one thing with them as food, and it was a pear. So apparently they laid the pair down, they said a prayer, they told the, the uh, Menahune that they meant them no harm and that they brought the food for an offering. But Brian went to go uh, put the pair on the altar and it was through tall grass so Lisa lost track of him for a minute. And then he came back screaming and running away and apparently Brian and Lisa uh, saw um, little people running through the grass at them and they were trying to encircle Brian. So all three of them abandoned the fire and apparently they drove screaming into the night.
So like I said, that is definitely one of the more creepy stories of the Menahune. There's a lot more very scary stories out there as well. I just didn't have time to cover, obviously, a lot of them on my Monster of the Week. This part might sound completely crazy, but in 1820, there was a census done that showed 65 out of the 2,000 people on the island were in fact Menahune. And it is true, and uh, the Bishop Museum even published the census in 1951, and you could see that there were people who were claiming to be Menahune. So now the question is, are there really Menahune still on the islands? Did some of them really partake in the census, or did that many people just make that part up? If the Menahune are real, do you think the families of the ones who were counted in the 1820 census are now a modern people who are still in hiding to this day? I would love to find out, but it sounds like they are still playing tricks on us humans. So while you're on vacation enjoying those tropical beaches and beautiful forests, keep an eye out for the Menahune. never been to Hawaii so I do not understand for myself the beauty of the islands or met the amazing people who live on them. I really knew nothing about Hawaii before I did this episode. I knew that it became an official U.S. state in 1959 and that it is now one of the top tour destinations in the world but that was about it. I had no idea I would discover so much rich history and beauty behind it and also how bloody the past of the islands truly is and how the United States took the islands in the first place is not fair at all. But the history does make it easier to understand why so many lost souls could be hanging around the islands today. And before I get started, I am not good at Hawaiian names like I've mentioned before, so I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these, and I apologize for that. But let's get the history started by going back about 1,500 years ago to understand the beauty and the history of the islands of Hawaii. The first human settlers were Polynesians who came to Hawaii by setting sail from the Marquinas Islands around 300 AD. That's about 1,500 years ago. They were voyagers longing to explore new lands, using only the stars to guide them. They traveled to Hawaii in nothing more than small canoes made from wood, stone, and shells. The islands are still to this day the most geographically isolated place on Earth, further than the nearest landmass than any other island chain. When the Polynesians found the island, there were no predators, no snakes, no mosquitoes, no disease, and also no plant life. The first settlers brought plants to the islands like bananas, coconuts, and sweet potato, and the voyagers that came first were the very best tribesmen, for they had to build and plant everything to get it ready for the rest of their people to come and settle on the islands. Once the islanders ready to be settled, the families came, and when the families showed up, they split the sections of the islands amongst a two-class system, the high chiefs and the commoners. 
They shared the land over all and worked together. It worked, and they lived in peace with no wars for nearly 1,000 years. They lived in complete isolation with no one coming or going until sometime between the 11th and 14th century. In canoes with groups of hundreds of Tahitians came to the island, led by the chief Pau. He brought his own culture that worshipped the god of war and a power that he called mana. The idea of having the most power over all others by death. He forced everyone to follow his religion. Pau required sacrifices to honor the god and himself and give him war strength. The islands were split into islands ruled by chiefs who were ruled by the war god and taking over lands and trying to gain more power that was called mana to the other chiefs. For another 100 years, it was a bloody time for the islands. All the chiefs were killing each other and tried to gain more mana, to gain more power and control over the land. They did not know how to forge steel at this time, so they used whatever they could to find from the island as weapons. Lots of weapons were clubs carved out of wood, and the ends had shark teeth around them. Imagine someone coming after you with that in their hands. Yikes. When the first European ship found Hawaii, it was still at war. The islands were all split and owned by ruling chiefs. This is the world of Hawaii that the British adventurer Captain James Cook discovered in 1778. By this time, Cook himself was basically famous in Britain. He was the man you wanted to have at your dinner table if you were royal or well-to-do. He was a British Navy captain who had created detailed maps of Newfoundland and made many discoveries in the Pacific Ocean, being the first European to make the first contact with Australia, New Zealand, and lastly, Hawaii. In 1796, the Earl of Sandwich paid his voyage of discovery with two ships, the Resolution and the Discovery. He went off to find more islands in the Pacific. On his first trip to the islands of Hawaii, he laid anchor down near the island that was called Kauai. The people of the island came to greet them. At first, it was a friendly exchange. The men from the island gave Cook's men lots of food the first day. Cook wanted to send some men ashore, but he knew that the diseases that he had on his ship would be devastating to the people. He quarantined his men on one of the ships and only sent his most trusted men ashore, but it was not enough. Now, I try to keep this uh, show a low PG-rated show, but for the name of history, I do have to talk about this really quick. When the boat of men went ashore, the men saw the women on the islands, and one thing led to another, and by the end of it, they basically spread things like gonorrhea and syphilis to the women that they had intercourse with. Cook knew that this was not good. He actually wrote in his journal that he feared that the people were doomed now because he left behind those diseases that they had no immune system for. By day three of the boat still being off the islands, the men on the island had had enough. They kind of overstayed their welcome and wanted the newcomers to move on. And so they went after the boats and started to take anything that was not tied down. One Hawaiian tried to steal a boat hook, and when he would not let go, one of the men from Cook's ship shot him. He was the first native Hawaiian to die by gunfire. After the skirmish, Cook left Kauai and went north to discover more land. He spent a year looking for a way around the west side of America and a way through Alaska, but the ice packs forced him to go back to the islands. 
This time he went into the bay of the island of Hawaii. When he came in, the people on the island saw him coming and let him come ashore and cooked him and his men a great feast and treated him like a chief himself. He was even the first European to witness board surfing. The Hawaiians showed Cook their history with the hula dancing. The Hawaiians had no written language, but they had a great way of communicating with their own spoken language, and dancing the hula was a big part of it. While he was there enjoying all the food and dancing, he did notice the disease that his men had left behind. He wrote about it again in his journal, saying how sad he was that they had done that. In February of 1779, Cook and his crew left for home, but due to a storm, the ship, the Discovery, had its mast snapped, and they returned to Hawaii, but they were not greeted the same way as when they went the first time. The Hawaiians had decided that Cook had overstayed his welcome. The Hawaiians began to go after the ships and the crew. They stole items and took a skiff from one of the boats. A skiff is a small boat that sits on the side of the bigger boat, so it's basically what you would call a lifeboat today. On February 14th, 1779, Cook came up with a plan to get the boat back. His brilliant plan was to kidnap the high chief on the island and take him as hostage. Apparently, that had worked before. <laughs> he went ashore with some men to do so, and the chief was prepared to go with him, but the women started to do a death chant that made Cook pull away from him, and when he did so, he put his hands on the chief, and it got the warriors very upset because the chief's body was sacred. One of the warriors started poking Cook in the back with a spear, and Cook turned around and fired his gun at the man, and that was all it took. Another warrior stabbed Cook and Cook fell to the ground, and all the local people started beating him to death with knives and spears that Cook himself had given them as a gift before. Cook tried to crawl to his skiff, but he didn't know how to swim, so he had nothing to do but lay there and watch his men get away as he died on the beach. And I just find that really odd. How do you become a Navy captain and you don't even know how to swim? Like, wouldn't that want, you would think that would be the first thing you'd want to know how to do is swim. If you were on a boat your entire life. That just blows my mind that he couldn't swim. After he died, the islanders cut him into pieces and they burned the rest of his body. They ripped flesh from the bone and wrapped it in this cloth and then tried to burn it in a bond, like kind of like a bonfire. And what they were trying to do is take his mana, his war power away from him. When the men of, from Cook's ship came back uh, for his body, they only got like their, his hands and the men also got back his head and a couple of pieces of clothing but that was all they gave back like the rest was all gone of cook's body so the men on the ship took cook's what was left of him and put him in a coffin and put some cannonballs in there and then they dumped him over the side into the ocean and then all the men sailed back home so his remains are still down there somewhere to this day while Cook's death is disturbing enough, before Cook died, he met a man who called himself Tamehameha. Now, he was the nephew of Pau, the man who had come and uh, took charge of everyone's religion and got all the chiefs to fight for after a thousand years of peace. He was said to be destined for greatness. When he met Cook, he grilled him with information about modern and Western war tactics and weapons. He was not just strong, but he was also smart. Apparently, he had the mind of a scientist. The biggest thing 
Kamehameha wanted was the guns and the big ships. He wanted to take them so he could take over the islands and rule over everyone. After that encounter, Tomehameha embraced the new technology and the new way of life. Once men started coming with more ships to the islands after hearing of Cook's discovery, they found that lots of goods could be traded and shipped to other countries. And Tamehameha embraced this change right away. And what he traded for the sandalwood and florals that they used for perfumes, he traded for weapons to start building his stockpile for a takeover. Once the first Americans came to the islands in 1790 aboard the sister ships Fair American and the Eleonora, things started to go bad for the Americans right away. After a Hawaiian killed one of the crew members from the Eleonora, the captain of the Eleonora, Simon Metcalf, decided to retaliate in a really horrific way. It's known today as the Ohalua Massacre, and I hope I said that right. I think I did. Anyway, the captain Metcalf uh, put all, basically what he did is he put all his cannons on one side of the ship and Metcalf told all the people, uh, from the island to come and trade and bring their canoes out, uh, to come to the ship to do some big trading event. And once all the Hawaiians had gathered there in a big group, he opened fire on them. Keep in mind that there was men, women, and children on those boats. So he basically slaughtered them all. One man named Isaac Davis was on the island at the time of the massacre, and the chief kidnapped him and told him to work for him or die. Basically, there was no alternative. So he agreed. After this, Tamehameha uh, had to retaliate, right? So he went aboard the ship, the Fair American, and killed all the sailors on board and took the ship for himself. Isaac Davis was the only man to survive this. At this time, Tamehameha had already kidnapped another man, and that man's name was John Young. Tamehameha offered him and Davis a deal. Join me and teach me how to use the boats and the weapons or die. So, of course, the two men decided to work for him. I mean, what are they going to do? They're on an island surrounded by only Hawaiianers, so obviously they didn't want to die. So they had no choice. They taught Tamehameha Western fighting techniques, as well as how to use all the weapons that were left on the ships. And the two men also became Tamehameha's main political advisors. With the help of the two Westerners that he had captured, Tamehameha became the top trading partner with the British, and he wanted to be just like them and started to gain a true navy as well. He even dressed like British people. He became known as the Napoleon of the Pacific. He took his navy to take out his oppositions island by island in his big conquest. His war canoes were said to have stretched miles. He slowly took over islands by islands with cannon fire and modern weapons. The Battle of Oyupali and that led to the mass killing at the cliffs of Nahunwanyi, I think is how you say that is really tragic as well. So basically what Tamehameha did is he had his army come to the shores and they pulled all the cannons and everything off the ships and they drove these people across a valley to these cliffs. And when they're, they had their backs against the cliff and they basically just forced everyone to, to their death by pushing them off the cliff. Thousands of men, women, and children and the elderly who didn't want to be separated from their families, they died. They just shoved them all off the cliff. The actual count is unknown, but it is the single greatest loss of life in Hawaiian history. 
After this battle, it was 1810. Now, Tamehameha had finally owned the islands and ruled over all of them as the sole king until his death on May 8th, 1819. He followed the Europeans' ways by naming his eldest son the king after him and named one of his 12 wives, well, his favorite out of the 12 wives, to be the top count in the top council position. She was the first woman in Hawaiian history to gain such a high position. However, right after the king's death, she summoned the king's eldest son and told him that she would be taking over. She was the real ruler of the islands from here on out, and he was more of just the face. Basically, what she said is, here is your land and here's your wealth. You do what you want and stay out of my way and I will not have to kill you. So the son basically said, okay, and went along with the plan anyway. <laughs> um, the first rule that she got rid of like right away was this law that was nearly 2,000 years old. And the law was called Kapu, and it meant that the men and women could not eat or live together. So she got rid of this law basically overnight. It was the very next day that she got rid of it. And the way she got rid of it was eating with the uh, now puppet king, basically, the son of the old king. And they had a feast together, and that's how she announced that it was just, it was over. The next thing she did was she ordered all of the old religious temples burned and to be knocked down. There was some uprising at first, but they were no match for the modern weaponry that the queen had. There is a place on the island that is still an old mass grave from that battle that was like the end all uprising. Like she stomped them out pretty fast in that one. And you can still see the mass grave mounds to this day. While still in the year 1819, a boat left Boston with missionaries heading for Hawaii. They wanted to go turn the Hawaiian heathens, as they called them, into Christians. When they arrived in 1920, everything changed. They came ashore and built churches and set up houses and even convinced the queen to convert to Christianity. At first, no one came to the churches because they did not trust the newcomers on the island. The Hawaiians called them Howleys. But once the queen started attending the churches and converted, the Hawaiians began to come in and listen to the sermons and listen to them sing. But they also discovered something that they had never seen before, a written language. The Bibles offered the first true look at what a book looked like. And even some of the missionaries helped the Hawaiians write down their own language. And then from that own language, they were able to write down all the history of Hawaii in books. After the missionaries showed up, things began to change rapidly for the islands. From 1820 to 1845, Lahaina was the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. In 1835, the first sugar plantation on Kauai opened up and the agriculture became a dominating economic, economic force for the whole island community. In 1845, the missionaries had been called back. The mission in uh, America basically said it was a success. You can come home now. So a lot of the missionary families had a choice. They could either go back home and do more missionary stuff or they could stay and try to fend for themselves and make a fortune. So a few of the families that stayed are still known to this day as to be the dominating factors in Hawaii. The names like Castle, Cook, Dole, and Spreckle, they are still the biggest names in Hawaii today. They went into plantation farming and modern land development. But of course, they started getting greedy. They wanted more. 
By the 1870s, America had started putting its eye uh, from the agricultural to what they really wanted, and that was Pearl Harbor, even back then. They knew that if they had Pearl Harbor, they could control that part of the Pacific with their navy. And this was also in the middle of a movement. So in 1870, there was this respiratory treaty. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say it, but basically it gave the Hawaiian people like the right to sell their sugar from their sugar plantations without a tariff. So in a way it was supposed to be poor it was portrayed as a really good agreement for the Hawaiian people, but at the same time it was kind of just the white people's way of trying to work their way in. The king at the time was Camelia Ka, I think is how you say it. And then there was also another woman who was also up for the throne as queen, and that was Queen Emma. They were deadly enemies. One, so Emma followed the British rule system, and Kamehameha, he um, favored more of the American way. So, of course, the white people on the island, who were mostly Americans, wanted him over her. There was a riot, and even one person got killed in the Capitol building over this. But in the end, the Americans got what they wanted. The king won. So the king was in and Emma was out. The American groups basically just started squeezing the king until it was just, they had had enough. The Americans wanted one rule. They wanted America in and the whole Hawaiian system to just disappear. So on July 6, 1887, the men who wanted the U.S. only rule decided to make their move. Lauren Thurston gathered forces of pro-American troops and he created an all-white militia that they called the Honolulu Rifles. They marched to the palace and presented the king with a a new constitution for him to sign. He had no choice but to sign it. It was basically, sign this or die. I feel like that happens a lot in Hawaii, sadly. The king called it the bayonet constitution, and he lost all political power, and he just basically became a figurehead. In 1893, the king Kamehameha died and left the queen which was Lily Kanu, um, to take over the throne. Now, she was a really cool person. Um, she was an artist and also a poet and a musician. She has even composed um, 165 songs, including the very famous song Aloha Oi. Her reign was short-lived. The Americans basically summoned her to the palace and gave her the same spiel of her brother, and told her basically to stay out of their way. She did go to Washington, D.C. to try to plead for her throne back, and she gathered a lot of support, but by then it was just, it was too late. She was completely overthrown by 1893. Hawaii was officially annexed by the United States through what was called the New Lands Resolution, and in 1941, the last queen of Hawaii passed away. On December 7th, 1945, Pearl Harbor was attacked and World War II started, and then on August 21st, 1959, Hawaii officially became a state, and it became the 50th state of America. Today, Hawaii is one of the top travel spots, and I have been told that everyone should go at least once in their life. So I will be going someday for sure. It looks beautiful and I have found out that they even do ghost tours in some of the cities. So I of course will be definitely taking one of those. Well, I hope that wasn't too long of a history lesson. I left out a lot. There's a lot more to Hawaii than I could squeeze into this episode. 
I didn't want you all to fall asleep on me, so I had just tried to share the main story of Hawaii and its rich culture, and it's deep in controversy, but it also is full of legends and, of course, ghost stories. With so much ancient culture and different beliefs of people who now live on the islands, you will find many different types of hauntings here. The Hawaiians had been worshipping gods and goddesses for thousands of years before the missionaries came in the 1800s to change a lot of people to Christianity. And of course, you will also be getting some urban legends mixed in as well. Hawaii is a chain of islands that make up what we now call Hawaii. The islands are made up of six islands, Kauai, Ahu, Molokani, and Lahani, and Maui, and then the island of Hawaii. The island of Hawaii is called the Big Island, and oh my god, I know I said one of those names wrong, if not all of them, and I sincerely apologize for that. So because they're islands, this is going to be a bit of an all-over creepy. Did you guys just hear that? My door just creaked. Well, that definitely adds to the spooky ambiance. I always get the creeps after I tell these stories, especially when I'm in my room at night in the dark. But I love you guys, so I make sacrifices for you. Okay, so like I was saying, this is going to be a bit of an all-over-the-place type of show because I'm going to try to hit up all the islands that I can. Um, there's way too many ghost stories for me to tell, um, but I'm going to do my best to A, pronounce the names of the towns and the areas right, and B, tell you at least what island the story is on if I can find the information. So let's get on to the ghosts. We're actually going to be starting off with a curse. That reminds me a lot of the curse of Bodie, California. Um, Bodie is a uh, ghost town in California, and there's supposedly a curse on the town that if you take anything from the town, and you will have bad luck follow you until you either bring the peace back, or some people have even had death. So the park rangers from that town have said that they've gotten they get hundreds of packages a year. Um, with an object like a rock or maybe a bottle or a piece of glass from the town. And they say they've had the worst luck ever, so they're sending it back to hopefully change their luck. Well, the same apparently holds true to the lava rocks on the islands. Apparently there is a curse that no one can take the lava rocks from Hawaii or bad luck will follow them home. The national parks may get many packages um, with little rocks in them and then also like a letter of apology. So whether this is true or not, um, it is a good way of keeping the uh, people, like the tourists, from stealing all the rocks of Hawaii. And it seems to be working because lots of people seem to stay on their best behavior when visiting the islands. But also, if you think about it, to get back to the mainland, you have to either take a boat or a plane over a lot of water. So personally, I would not want a curse following me with all that hang time in the air if you're flying. That's a long time for something to go wrong. Hitchhiking ghost stories are all over the world and even inside the Disney's Haunted Mansion ride, which is one of my favorite rides of all time. Hawaii has one too, but this one has a little bit different flair. Most stories talk of a beautiful young woman in a white dress who uh, asks you to give them a ride and then when you get to their destination, she just kind of vanishes. But in Hawaii culture, you might want to pick up an older woman if you see her on the side of the road hitchhiking. It is said that on the big island, people teach their teenagers to always pick up a hitchhiker if it's an older woman because it could be Pele. Pele is the goddess of fire and the creator of all the islands. 
If you don't help her out, she might curse you or she will make sure that you have misfortune. So you should always make sure to pick up an older woman if you see her hitchhiking on the side of the road. And you know, even if it's not Pele, the goddess of fire, it's still a nice idea to help older women out anyway. There is a highway called Nenupele, Nahune Pele. Oh my god, I know I said that wrong. But anyway, Nahune Pele. And uh, you cannot take bring pork from one side of the island to the other. The story goes that the goddess Pele made an agreement with her once lover that was a half-man, half-pig demigod named Kawapu. After having a really bad breakup, basically, the two of them decided they never wanted to see each other again. So they split the island in half. Pele said of the island is called the leeward side and that it does not rain much there and is a much more drier climate. Being a volcano goddess, I assume she likes the drier climate. The windward side is the more wet side of the island and that is how Kamapau liked it. So he liked his weather wet, she liked it dry. So the legend has it that if you try to bring pork from the leeward side to the wayward side, you will have bad luck or misfortune and you will not be able to cross over the halfway mark. I came across many stories that says that this is no joke. People have tried to bring pork to the leeward side and they have claimed that their cars have just died on the road or even stopped in their tracks or sadly some of them even gotten a little car wreck right on the midway point. Perhaps one of the most haunted places is the cliffs where the Battle of Nahunaut happened. And that that's the spot that I talked about where King Kamehameha went after his last island that he wanted in his conquest. So he went after the people of Oahu to take over all the islands. And this is the place where a lot of the men, women, and children were pushed off the cliff to their deaths. At this location that is now a memorial site and like a place where you can learn about the facts of what happened there hundreds of years ago, uh, people have claimed to see residual reenactments of the battle that kind of just appear in front of their eyes. Also, you can hear people screaming at night, people pleading for help. Cold spots have been reported as well as cries for help deep into the woods. You can also hear something in the woods calling your name, kind of like a mimic uh, spirit, which those always freak me out. And there is apparently Menahune that also come to the location at night, as well as what is known the calling spirit. So the calling spirit comes in the form of a young woman and normally shows itself to troubled young men and then puts them kind of into a trance-like state. And the woman then leads them to their deaths over the side of the cliff. Now that's spooky. On the island of Maui near Makana, there is the most famous story of the night marchers. The night marchers have been spotted at many locations on all the islands, but the night marchers are described as a group of ancient warrior spirits who are forever locked in a procession. It is believed that they were once in charge of moving the sacred priests and chiefs from one location to another. The group would march in a line formation with torches and lights, um, to light the way and they would beat their drums and blow on a conch shell a conch shell Oops. and they'd chant so that everybody in their path uh, would know that they were coming and they'd have to run and hide you were not supposed to look at the sacred ones and they were in the middle of the procession or at the front or the back if the front was sacred they would be in the back or the front of the procession and if their back was sacred they would be at the back of the procession if you looked upon them when they were going by, they would find you and trample you to death. If you were in the path of them, you would have to strip naked and get down on your belly and keep your eyes closed and lay flat. And no matter how hard you wanted to, it was important never to look directly at them. 
The ghosts are now seen and heard from afar to this day. It is said that you can hear their drums and the blowing of a conch shell far off in the distance at night, as well as many people have reported seeing torches moving throughout the forest paths only to vanish without a trace. Don't get too close though, because they apparently still, if you look upon them, you will still die, even though they are ghosts now. Lots of people on the islands have reported hearing them and seeing the scary lights from afar, and it is still a very creepy topic to bring up to this day. Queen Emma's summer palace is said to be haunted by her unrestful spirit, still angry and sad that she never got to ascend to the throne. A lady in white is said to be her spirit and has been seen by many of the staff, as well as the staff had reported feeling an unknown presence when they were alone. There is also a ghost dog here. Her son, Prince Albert, and the godson to the Queen Victoria, and he sadly only lived to be four years old, and his dog missed him so much that he spent the rest of his days waiting for him to come home, and then the dog died. And it is said that the dog is still roaming around the halls and the grounds looking for his beloved boy. And that makes me so sad, because us humans do not deserve dogs. They are too perfect and too sweet and kind. We've all heard of the lady in white and the gray lady, but a green lady? The Green Lady is said to haunt the Gulch of Winana on the island of Oahu, and it's now the botanical garden section that she haunts most frequently and has the most sightings of her. It is said that a woman was driven mad by her child being lost in the Gulch when he went out to play, and she went off to look for him, and she also never returned. So apparently her spirit is seen out there and she is purportedly dripping uh, from green moss and how has scales on her body because she's searching all the various rivers and ponds out there for her child. Apparently you can smell her before you can see her because she has a very foul smell when you come too close to her. The ghosts at Pearl Harbor are always a sad story. When the USS Arizona sunk on December 7th, 1941, 1,177 crew members were lost. It now sits at the floor of the harbor and is a tribute to the past. Apart from going to the location and feeling the gravity of the sadness and sorrow that was comes from a tragic place like this, you can also apparently see spirits. There have been many accounts of seeing servicemen still going about their old duties, still patrolling the area and the decks, Creepy noises and disembodied voices have been heard as long as shouts for help and men crying out in pain can be heard down the various hallways in the museum. And it's also heard of panicking footsteps and sometimes pacing as if someone is still on patrol. Hawaii's most haunted house is located at the corner of 8th and Harding on the foundation of two lava rock beds. The house is said to house a man-eating ghost from Japanese folklore, and the hauntings of this place are well documented. I was very surprised. There were several articles in the paper about it, and they still to this day have people terrified to live in this house. People have tried, and they leave absolutely horrified, and they run away from it in the middle of the night. The story goes that in 1942, police officers were called out to the house with the report of a woman who was screaming into the phone, and I quote, "'She's trying to kill my children.'" Once the officers arrived, they said that they found the children shrieking in pain. The mother was running around the house, sprinkling salt everywhere, trying to fend off an invisible force. Apparently, the little boy who was about 10 years old told his mother that he could see a ghost, and the ghost noticed that the boy saw her, and she got angry, and uh, he start, or the ghost started to attack him and his two sisters. 
The police were said to have witnessed the kids even being levitated at one point. After about an hour's struggle, the police was finally able to get the family out of the house, and once outside, the attack stopped. The family then went to spend the night at a relative's house, I don't blame them, and they moved out, and that was the end of that one. But 30 years later, a young girl was reportedly attacked by something she could not see again. She reported feeling something grab her arms and hold her down, and... Things started moving around the house, and they heard strange talking. The mother called police, but they had to run for it. So her and her daughters get into the car to try to drive away, but the ghost this time followed them. The ghost would not let go of the young girl's throat, and a cop saw them struggling and pulled over to try to help, but he was also attacked. He could not save the girl, and she actually died. It was reported in the paper as well. That part scares me because most stories of where the ghost, um, of ghostly activity, the ghost doesn't kill you. It just, it can hurt you, it can scratch you, but I've never heard of it actually killing you before. So this one killed her. So was this a ghost at all? Could this have been a demon or even the man-eating ghost that the Japanese warn about? I didn't even scratch the surface of Hawaii's full ghost stories. There is a Hawaii theater where a Chinese custodian was killed and now he haunts the theater. There is the Kakukau Fire Station, where another choking ghost story is there. There was the old governor's mansion where Queen Lilikuna is said to still haunt the halls. And Wimanana Falls, where a fish pond is said to have a drowning spirit that will take you down to the depths of the pond and hide your body forever and steal your soul. There's also reportedly a haunted airport, many haunted hotels, and a lot of other haunted beaches. Last thing I could tell from doing my research is Hawaii is one spiritually charged place. With so many religions and cultures mixing together in what was once the most isolated places in the world, it is no wonder to think that this place could be haunted. hope you have all enjoyed my history and hauntings of this beautiful location and thank you guys so much for listening just a reminder for you to subscribe to my podcast and please leave me a review down below so you can I can also read that on my show also don't forget to add me on Facebook and Twitter at history and mystery Instagram at history underscore mystery 13 and also my new website history and mystery 13.wixsite.com I hope you all have a fantastic week. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Bye.